Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. For today's episode of Daily Horror Habit, my guests and I are daring to say his name and subsequently spreading the word about Candyman. More specifically, director Nia DaCosta's take on Candyman, as she has summoned this horror icon to the silver screen for the first time in more than 20 years. Currently in theaters, Candyman, which was produced and co-written by none other than Jordan Peele, serves as the direct sequel to Bernard Rose's masterful 1992 original, smartly ignoring the two sequels that came before it. DaCosta shepherds us back to Cabrini Green a decade after the events of the original film, as Cabrini Green has since been gentrified, and artist Anthony, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and his partner Brianna, played by Tayana Paris, move into the neighborhood. Anthony's suffering from a creative impasse for his next piece, but a chance encounter with a local resident exposes him to the story behind the Candyman folklore. But in rekindling the tale of terror that has plagued Cabrini Green for all these years, Anthony has unknowingly unleashed a new wave of haunting violence. And joining me today to discuss all things Candyman is friend of the show and the co-creator and host of Greenline Fair Films podcast, Wahid. Wahid, welcome back to the show, man. Oh, good to be here. Been, uh, been a minute. <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute, but uh, it feels fitting that we're here today to talk about Candyman, considering you and I did a series review of uh, the Candyman franchise for Greenline Fair Films. Uh, we did, obviously, the original, yep. second, and then... The... It was like two years ago before everything went to yeah. shit. It seems like a lifetime ago, but uh, I'm thrilled to have you on to chat uh, Candyman, a film that I feel like we almost didn't get it because of the pandemic, right? I mean, it had, what, three delays, I think? It went from June 2020 to September 2020 to October 2020 until they said, fuck it, we'll just release it in uh, August of 2021. Yeah, I'm pretty sure when we wrapped up our original uh, review of like the the trilogy, like it should have come out like a month after that. And then... Yeah. And here we are, basically like a year and a half later, watching it. All that time and effort into planning it, and then it completely got upended. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I had to revisit the first two films, the original ones, before this, just because it was like I hadn't rewatched them in so long since we had done that series review. But Mm -hmm. in getting to show like my roommates one and two, I walked away thinking that Nia DaCosta's was just the perfect sort of companion piece in a lot of ways, but I'm curious, they, this takes so many like big swings and it is a reimagining in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. How did you, what, like, what yeah. were your expectations for it? Dude, I'll say like, I think the trailer, when I watched it, I didn't watch any, anything recent. Uh, I only watched the initial trailer that they put out and I was like, okay, I'm good. Like, I don't need any more and I don't want to like ruin it for myself. Um, and even though like it, just done so well like the cinematography and amazing like and like you know like, I've, I've talked about how like i'm a bitch when it comes to horror <laughs> movies like i will i love watching horror movies but that movie does a really good job of like building suspense and like having you just like anxious the entire time compared to uh like you know a typical horror movie now just like jump scare after jump scare but like, there's no really like build up to it it's just just throw something at your face to just freak you out but this movie does a really good job of actually having like the horror element there and like really kind of grabbing you at the moment when there is something kind of scary about to happen and yeah like it's done really well um everyone's acting and basically the kind of the heart of the movie like just seeing the kind of progression of all the characters um yeah uh it was, it was really good um yeah yeah Abdul Mateen and like that dude before yeah. like he is um did you ever watch so he used to be in the show called the get down on netflix have you, have you heard, I've of, heard it? of it i never got a chance to see it so it was one of those things though where you have all this prominent cast and things even if i haven't seen them but it's just interesting to see people be dropped into a horror film that don't necessarily have a great deal of experience in the horror genre and yeah. yet mm. it just shows their versatility right they, it's almost as if they didn't miss a beat. It's all so natural. And it was really, really refreshing to see people kind of break into that genre and then take all of their skill set from the various 
other genres and things that they've uh, spent their careers doing and it just flows so naturally and it feels very organic to the film. I mean, for me, I find that like the Halloween uh, reboot and sequel from 2018 was a really good template in a lot of ways for horror films that are coming back in the sense that it kind of re it gives you a history lesson a little bit about the franchise history, but then it builds mm -hmm. and expands on the things that the original did so well. And I think that Candyman is even a better example of that, right? And I think that this film yeah. does such a good job of taking the core roots of the original and expanding on it in new and creative ways that while they differ from the original film and the original series as a whole, it capitalizes on what those films and more specifically the original, what that film really kind of stood for and what it set out to do, but in a new gorgeous and like really, really weird way. But in that yeah. sense of style, it really succeeds in a way that it really blew me away considering, I mean, I enjoy the original uh, Candyman, but up until recently, it wasn't necessarily like one of my favorite films, but in revisiting it more mm -hmm. and more, like it's so funny to me that people like describe it as a slasher when it's really so much more than that. And it's really a disservice, I think, just to label it as like a slasher, even a supernatural slasher, because the film yeah. and especially Nia DaCosta's uh, reimagining and sequel, it does such a great job of being just more than that in more ways than one. Yeah, even... um. I like, I'm telling my friend, like, the original, like, when I probably watched it as a kid, to me, it was just, like, that creepy movie with the dude with the hook, and he, got, he covered in beans. Like, I never thought about it until we re we did the rewatch for the podcast. I, like, then realized, like, oh, shit, the movie actually has, like, a good amount of, like, there's, like, social commentary mm -hmm. in here that you don't really pick up on. Um, you're not going to think about it as a kid, right. but rewatching it, I was just like, oh, yeah, like, the movie and, like actually like pretty layered and like it's a yeah it's a horror movie but there is like something bigger here and even like this one like dude it couldn't have been more perfect in terms of uh just speaking on the the idea of like gentrification and sort of like police brutality and everything that i kind of touched upon in this movie and like how current it was without sort of feeling like um you know i feel like a lot of tv shows stuff they attempt that now where, like they try to have the social commentary uh, on like police brutality specifically in like black communities and stuff like that and it it does it in a really like really like woke way of just it, it just you know there's no sort of like subtlety or like there's nothing sort of nuanced about it and like it comes off really hokey but the movie just like does a really good job of kind of touching the the line and making it so like poignant without uh kind of overstepping in any sort of way or like feeling like it's just like some way to market a movie, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one thing that this film capitalizes on a way uh, more so than the original one. And that is, it's a story about uh, black trauma and like you said, these concepts like gentrification, police brutality and all these things. It's black stories, but it's being the, uh, told. Gen generational trauma yeah. too. Yeah, that's the Absolutely, yeah. Generational trauma and whatnot, and except it's black stories that are being told from a black perspective, whereas the original one, Bernard yeah. Rose's, which I think is a fantastic film, and this isn't a knock against it, but that is very much white voices telling black stories, right? And kind of exploring yeah. through the perspective of a white person and kind of white people seeing the um, African-Americans as like boogeymen, basically, right? Yeah. Like, oh my God, do you guys know about this right, shit? Yeah, I mean, well, you think about it, like Helen Lyle is researching like the hood, right? And they're talking about how scary the, yeah. the hood is and all of these things. And yet in Nia DaCosta's sequel, it is black characters living throughout their uh, the reality of their stories in a way that the original one didn't touch upon. And it just, it further enriches the core concepts of the original film, but in a new way that, feels refreshing and it doesn't just feel like they are telling the same story again right because they have new insight yeah. and different insight into it because they've actually lived it whereas Helen in the original yeah. was just kind of discovering these things I feel like the Candyman mythos and whatnot is in, it feels more inevitable in this one because it's mm -hmm. like well their trauma has touched everybody's life more or less in this film to, to a certain degree whereas Helen is kind of like coming to it this white perspective privileged educated all these different things yeah. that it seems so much more 
traumatic or it just seems so much more unexpected. Whereas in this, it's like it's an extension of a trauma that a lot of the characters have probably experienced in different ways, or at least more people that we meet in the film have experienced a form of trauma. And that's a great way they, uh, that was like a really cool change that I liked with sort of like the Candyman uh, lore. But you know, in the original, it's just Tony Todd and and uh, uh, I'm blank on him like character, an actual character. Daniel Robitaille uh, in the original. Daniel Robitaille. Yeah. Um, it's just him, you know. Uh, but I love the idea of the form where it becomes like every third generation. There's like a new Candyman that surfaces and it all times back to him. So like that's the great like. Uh, I love the way they kind of approach that. Like, he's still sort of at the center of it, but this idea of, like, they're sort of a new version of it every uh, 30, 40 years, whatever. Um, and I feel like... I don't know if... Did you, so the original, wasn't it three times you had to say it? No, it's always been five times. Wasn't it always five? Oh, okay. For some reason, the whole time, like, I thought it was three, but maybe they just took a freedom with the with the made it five but i guess not i definitely agree though like that idea that there have been multiple candy men throughout history and stuff like that really does reinforce mm-hmm. that idea of generations of trauma and this idea that it's not so much i think it even ties into the folklore nature of Candyman even better than the original right because it's not one single person sure danny robitai still the uh genesis of it because it's all those years mm-hmm. ago but since then it has been a recurring thing, which is also not only reflective of just like the folklore nature of saying his name, keeping the story alive, but also, again, like the black experience in America in, in a lot of ways. And that's one of the things that the film really kind of reinforces with a lot of its commentary. But it's just interesting to show that through multiple different people and seeing how many lives this touches and it's tied to the community. But the idea that Mm-hmm. It's just one single person that everybody sees the same way throughout all of history. Yeah. I like that idea that it it almost it not removes Tony Todd, but it stops making it stops him from being at least in this depiction. It's not just like another slasher icon or villain, right? It's more about the idea, yeah, exactly. which is intrinsically tied to the whole folklore nature, which I think actually works better. Not to ever say like Tony Todd wasn't. Uh, uh, not that I don't love that character. Like the heart right, of yeah. the franchise. He's always yeah. been the heart and he always will be. But it's just cool to see them expand upon it more so in that it's not just the same guy, right? It's this thing that is yeah, affecting Yeah, exactly. People. Like, oh, the thing for 300 years or 200 years ago that people are still afraid of. Like, no, it's still... It's a different person each time. I, I love... Uh, even the way the movie started with um, the child going into the the laundry room and everything, like... Um, oh, can we actually talk about even like the opening? Absolutely. Uh, just the way the movie starts now, how it's kind of like a reflection of the original, where you just get the the overshot view of like Chicago, and uh, you have like the the music like uh, just playing where the one it kind of reversed, where you're kind of looking up toward the right. sky, traveling through the city. It was. I had, like, chill in the, just, like, from the opening itself. Well, right from the jump, it's reflective in the sense that it is literally reflect. It's the reversed of how the original opened and that the perspective is shifted. But yeah. also, it just shows right from the opening moments that, like, yeah, there's going to be elements that are familiar, but it's going to be from the, the other side, as it were, right? Or the reverse perspective, which yeah. I really love because that does set the tone perfectly in the sense that there's going to be elements that we touch upon and elements that are built upon that are familiar from the original trilogy, but this is a very different way of telling this story. It's a lot weirder, but it's equally mm-hmm. gorgeous and it's equally inventive in a way that I think really complements it in a great way. Again, like it, you call it a sequel because it's literally a sequel that picks up like a decade later but or two decades later, but it's more about how this film is telling a, another variation of that. Like, it's more of a companion... I would refer to it as, like, a companion piece, right? Because it's not... Oh, yeah. ...simply just a sequel. Again, like, I, the way that uh, people talk about a movie like this, like, to say that it's just a sequel or a slasher, like, 
it feels very reductive, right? Because there's so much more to it, whether yeah. it's the social commentary or the cinematography and the sort of uh, folklore mm. deviations that it takes. But I want to go back for a minute to something that you mentioned, which is like how the film opens and we get to see a Cabrini Green resident when they were a child going into the laundromat and exploring a facet mm. of the Candyman lore, which was uh, Sherman Fields, which was like this man that is very resemblant of Candyman, right? He's got a literal hook for a hand yeah. that looks like a, uh, it's a prosthetic. And he wears like a, not the same jacket as uh, Tony Todd did, but a leather trench coat like, essentially, just, right? Yeah. And so just seeing how like, it, from the first film even, they were talking about how a woman was murdered, she called the police, or she was being murdered and she called the police and she told them like, oh, there's somebody living in the walls. And we see that that wasn't bullshit yeah. because Sherman Fields, was literally living in the walls of uh, Cabrini Green Housing Project and like how he very creepily crawls out of the wall and like hands the kid well, candy, like had candy. so fucking creepy. But it then ties into like, there's a greater significance than it just being creepy, right? It's ties into the, mm -hmm. the social commentary because the police are on scene because somebody put razor blades in candy and they assume it's this guy who- It's the black guy who's known for handing out candy yeah. to children. And then they yeah. murder him because without ever oh, they murder him right it's this thing where it's like yeah. they assume he's guilty so they just kill him but then they find out a few weeks later there's more can there's more razor blades turning up in the candy in that neighborhood also the, the hole in the wall one kind of i felt like a little neat touch tab with uh the original movie too and there's that one point where helen walked through a hole in the wall that you know on the other side it's painted on a mouth like tony Ta or the candy man's mm -hmm. mouth um so it was just cool that at that same moment like, you have this basically like you know the uh what's the word uh like this foreshadowing mm -hmm. of you know the man who would eventually become sort of the new Candyman right. uh of this generation kind of coming out of that hole in the wall and yeah just just neat little detail pointing to the original movie but without explicitly being like hey look at this nod to the original yeah there's a lot of like subtle and maybe not so subtle homages to the original but i just love that they feel like they're more complimentary than just a retreading on what they did in the original you know what i mean it's not just yeah. sort of like let's yeah it's a literal like if you know you know exactly. type thing otherwise like you're not gonna you're not even gonna think about it but you know if you're someone who's seen the movie recently like you may pick up on the little mm -hmm. detail um Absolutely, yeah. And I think I also really appreciate the fact that they evolve on the elements of the folklore and mythos in ways that tie more into the horror aspect of it, right? Because kind of the thing we've been talking about a lot is the ways they've expanded on it has been more about the social commentary, which has always been intrinsic to Candyman, right? That's always been at the core of it. But they also expand on it in supernatural ways that I think further complement, again, I keep referring to this being kind of like a, a weird movie, but I refer to it that, it that in a good way, right? Not in a bad way, but it's just the ways in which they expand on the mythos and the abilities and the sort of uh, the different supernatural elements of Candyman, like physically, mm -hmm. and how that plays into like the stellar cinematography and even the music in a lot of ways. What was uh, sort of an element in terms of like the ways that they evolve on Candyman that you thought worked that were new here? I mean, even the cinematography, like, when they kind of work with the actual point of Candyman, like, killing someone or uh, doing anything, like, I love that it's done with that perspective of, like, he's basically invincible, and all you see is just, like, the actual, uh, like, you know, the murder basically being happened to the individual, but without seeing him, where, like, you know, Tony Todd, when he, when it happened in the original movie, it's just Tony Todd coming out of nowhere and like you may see like in, the invisible moment of the original and then it'll actually cut to him being there and killing the person but i love the fact that um i think one one of the like particular kills that stood out was um when yaya abdul Bateen, uh went to go see the the critic oh, at Finley her house Stevens. yeah um when he goes to go see her and you know, he had that moment where he literally staring at himself in the mirror, and it turned into a reflection of um, Sherman, and he's just kind of freaking out, basically, and when he leaves the apartment, you just see she is walking, and, like, you get this long cut of the camera pulling away from the apartment, 
and all you see is her just standing there, and all of a sudden she gets lifted mm-hmm. off the ground and just dragged across the uh, the door to her balcony, and like it's just an unstopping uh, pull out of the camera. It's just, it it just keeps on going, and you just see her just being dragged and tossed around, and that was like chill like just watching that it's so well done and like any movie can do a kill and make it gory whatever but like and even if wasn't like intrinsically gory by any means but just the style of the way they kind of show the kill happening and like it that one like just like really kind of stuck with me after the yeah movie. absolutely i think that it's a much more interesting looking film in the sense of like the way in which they play around with like reflections in a lot of them because there's one there's one scene where these high school girls in a bathroom like summon Candyman, and then we never see mm-hmm. him, of course, because he's invisible always. But one of them drops her uh, compact, and we just see Candyman or somebody getting gutted in the reflection. Then you see Candyman like walking yeah. in the reflection of the mirror, which, again, it that is probably the least gory deaths in that uh, film. But it's much more interesting mm-hmm. because yeah, we know he's there. We get to see this sort of more of a complex uh, construction of that scene, but then it leaves it yeah. up to your imagination. You see pools of blood, but you don't see everybody getting gutted and whatnot, and there's a lot of that in the film in that you don't see a lot of the kills themselves. You see fragments yeah. of them or Just pieces the or the aftermath, which I'm actually more in favor of. That's a, a cr- criticism that I've seen online of the film in that, oh, it doesn't show enough or it's not brutal enough, but it's like, at the end of the mm. day, it's oh, and this is like something I always harp on about. It's always more terrifying when you're given certain variables, and then your mind puts the pieces together or something like that. Like you're always yeah. going to be able to think of something scarier. So to let your mind kind of wander with these horrifying uh, variables, in the end of the day, that yeah. ends up being more memorable than just yeah, he gutted another person, person six, seven, and eight. Yeah, just saying, just saying, a dude literally just murder like four girls in the bathroom, right. and then. Uh, <laughs> But the element that I think really resonates with me the most in terms of expanding on somebody on the Candyman idea is like the body horror elements of it, which I mean, I'm a sucker for body horror, but I really love the sort of infectious nature of Anthony becoming the next Candyman, right? It literally infects him. He gets stung by the bee. Oh, the fucking yeah, scab. He gets yeah. this oh. disgusting scab on his hand, which starts small, but then it grows and it literally is Candyman infecting him and he essentially kind of like becomes this almost like he looks like a human uh, honeycomb in a way where he's got these kind of these mark honeycomb uh, scabs and stuff all over him so he's literally becoming and like struggles with losing his sanity and whatnot and that everybody he visits Daniel Robitaille's or uh, no not at that point it's um, Sherman Fields Candyman Mm -hmm. is literally like becoming him or he's becoming him and that scene that you mentioned, which was so fantastic when he's looking in the mirror and he literally sees the reflection of Sherman Fields, like that is just Mm -hmm. such a fantastic shot and scene. And I think it really further kind of just reinforces that this is not just another slasher icon, right? It's more about this series always being this sort of gothic horror figure where it's very tragic and it's tied in tragedy. And yeah, it's creepy and to look at him and all these things, but at the same time, like it's literally infecting him at no fault of his own, almost. Other than, of course, he decides to spread the Candyman name. But it, we're talking about like the origin yeah. of Candyman in general is not one that is not uh, marred in tragedy. But in terms of Nia Dacosta's approach to storytelling, like it is very different mm-hmm. compared to Bernard Rose's. How did you find that it yeah. differed, uh, like stylistically? What did you think worked for you? I mean, even in general, I felt like uh, the killing part definitely done differently, which we talked upon. And then I think the use of color was pretty great. Like I, the original, the original one is very much like not what I don't want to say bland, but it's very um, it's simple. Like it's just daytime shots or daytime shots, like nighttime shots, or just maybe a candle or something, and those for the moment for. Um, um, or just streetlight during like sort of the horror moment but I think this movie does a really good job of um, using like even the art gallery scene like when they're it's shut down for the night and when he's being killed like 
there's no light within the building, but you get the reflection from the tree, and there's like this beautiful use of like sort of like purple and blue light, um, kind of reflecting into the building, and like you see his body being dragged, and I feel like a lot of these kills had like there is a like eye candy sense to it with um the way everything sort of like lit and even the the darker moments of the movie like they're in a sort of like uh a use of color um that's done really well and i think that's when this movie had a more stylish view to it compared to the original like i think with the original it's the actual content and the um the story that kind of carries it, mm-hmm. but this movie, like, it has everything in that sense. Like, it has the storytelling, it has the actual acting and the con, like, the actual, like, meat of the movie, but then the visual, like, component to it is, like, drop dead gorgeous. Like, there's a lot of really cool shots that, like, will stick with you that you think about of how kind of cool they look. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, like, with Nia DaCosta, like, she's going to be directing the the Captain Marvel sequel with Tiona Paris again. Like, they'll be working together again. And she has such a flair for style, I think. Cause I've never, honestly, I've, I've never seen anything before this that she was involved with. And she has such a great, um, her, she has such a great style, uh, when it comes to cinematography. And I'm really hoping that that gets to come into the Marvel Universe. I know sometimes they're a little bit more, uh, they kind of hone in on people when they make the movie, and they have to obviously kind of stick to the formula, but I really hope that they let her kind of keep her, her cinematic touch, because she got such a flair with, uh, with the way she actually filmed, and I hope that can kind of continue on. Yeah, absolutely, and I think, again, like, she has very creative alternatives to very simplistic problems or maybe simplistic approaches to storytelling, right? I think she very clearly can dis- display that like somebody getting murdered in an art gallery, she can make that visually interesting while having all the sort of elements of a traditional kill scene or something like that in terms of the structure. But I think the element that really resonates most with the identity of Candyman and it shows that this is somebody that truly understands the source material and understands the purpose of these films more than it just being about somebody getting murdered. It's the shadow puppetry segments that play throughout the film, right? And that's the essence of folklore and storytelling at its most basic form, right? I mean, all those thousands or millions of years ago and all these things, like people were telling stories at campfires with like shadow puppets and things like that. And so to see shadow puppetry being made by, and we see with a little boy uh, early in the film is it's, he's playing with them. And so seeing that, somebody is literally like recreating and storytelling and all these things in the community that this movie is based in like that's an element that i think again is really interesting instead of just getting like a grainy black and white uh flashback of things that have happened or just catching the audience up on these elements like that's a very organic and creative way to do that Uh, way to show it yeah no for sure it would it's really well done too like it's uh like it's new like it's not anything i've I were really seen in the movie to kind of explain, you know, like, uh, the sort of form of storytelling. Like, it's not common, I feel like, especially today. Like, everything would be just CGI'd or something. It's fun just playing with something very, like, old school like that. Of just, you're using Shadow Puppet for, to explain sort of, like, the, the myth of Candyman. And, um, yeah, like, even, like, without it, it would have made, it still would have been an incredible movie. But, like, I think just... That little touch again, like, that's another sort of sense of style uh, that this movie just had, where it just took something very old school, but did it so well um, in terms of, like, explaining the lore. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a creative solution to a common facet of storytelling, and it ties into the identity of Candyman so well, but um, more so also, like, I just love that it ties directly into this idea of the ways in which myths and folklore get distorted over the years, right? I think you probably caught that during the time when they're catching us up on the events of the previous film and they're talking about uh, Helen Lyle and the events that occurred at the very end of the movie. They start distorting the truth from what actually happened, right? They talk about how uh, Mm -hmm. 
Like she kidnapped the baby. Right. And, she kidnapped the baby. Yeah. When the police came to arrest her, she was doing snow angels in the pool of blood and all this stuff, which never happened yeah. in the original film. But it shows yeah. how one person either fab purposefully or uh, or accidentally fabricating a piece of information and passing it on via word of mm. mouth. You just see how these things get distorted over the years. And like, that's such a minor thing in the film, a minor moment. But again, it ties into the idea that somebody truly understands the root of folklore and all of these things to the degree that it complements the entire film as a whole. Or speaking of which, uh, with the reveal of, yeah, of uh, Anthony being the baby from the story, like, I think they did reveal that in the trailer, right? Oh, they did? I was like I you. They, I was like you. I watched the first trailer and I was like, I'm fucking in. I'm not watching anything else. Yeah, I think I. I think it, they did show in a later trailer that they like revealed that he won the baby, which I. Wow. I'm glad I didn't watch anything recently because when we got to that scene where you meet his mom and I'm like the whole time thinking like, yo, she looked really familiar, <laughs> and then it, it like dawned on me. I'm like, oh shit, she was the mom from the uh, yeah. the original movie. And Vanessa um, Williams looks like she hasn't aged a day either. Dude, seriously, she looked amazing. Um. Yeah, I couldn't believe, like, I really wish that I cut that out of the trailer because I'll think it had been so long that I forgot myself. Right. But when we got to that point, like, it's such a perfect little twist to the movie. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like the one thing they should have just kept out of the trailer. It would have made for such a, like, dope reveal. That blows my um, mind. Because, I, I, case in point, why I watch the first trailer and then I don't watch anything else for movies cause, or games because they just get so... I've, you can feel producers like frantic, frantic nature towards closer to uh, the release where they're like, we can't risk not having as many people seeing this as possible. Let's give them something else to get excited about. And then it's like, well, yeah. you end up revealing something that it's like, that's an oh shit moment in the theater. And that's like my yeah. buddy and I uh, who wants to go see it. We're just like, what the fuck? Um, but yeah. before we kind of jump into the twist and all of that, um, one thing that I do think really heightens a lot of the visuals that we've been talking about and how fantastic this sort of like creative deviations from uh, the other films is, is that the hypnotic score that uh, Robert A.A. Lowe did, I think the score for this movie is so fantastic. It really does channel oh, yeah. a lot of uh, the Philip Glass who did the uh, mm. score of the original film. And I think that it takes the essence of that. And yet it, again, it's not just trying to carbon copy what the previous, what the original film did. Uh, it, still hits all those right notes of just like being daunting and being uh, yeah. dread inducing and all these things. But it there's a little bit of like weird twangness to everything, right? There's a little bit yeah. of something that feels off or feels a minor out of place, but it just works so well within yeah, the, the context the, of the, the choir film. of children hit different. <laughs> yeah. That kind of actually, uh, reminded me of us a lot and i mean jordan peele obviously involved in this as producer and co-writer yeah his production company uh monkey paw was behind this um it kind of reminded me of us who uses a chorus of children in one of the songs too. literally yeah when I, I i in the middle of watching the movie i like thought the like oh they kind of remind me of the way us started yeah and then it, it clicked in my head like oh wait no the original movie even like kind of had the same exact thing <laughs> absolutely um, yeah so i i'm just a huge fan of films that are a continuation of or a remake and them channeling again like the ethos of the original while it's never mm -hmm. it's always a little different it's always a little weird or they take yeah. liberties with things that maybe the original director or original visionaries don't even agree with but the ways in which a new visionary is able to incorporate them it leaves their own distinct kind of flavor on it which ultimately makes it their own in a way even if it is borrowing or building upon uh, previously established source material which I love yeah, the movie did everything that Faith Jam 2 couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think also we should, again, just highlight the phenomenal performances in this movie. Because like you said, Yahai uh, Abdul, Mateen II, uh, and Teona Paris are both fantastic. I mean, Anthony McCoy oh, and uh, his girlfriend, uh, Brianna Cartwright. I mean, again, they are so natural as a couple. Mm -hmm. But also, I just love that they feel so at home in this world. And again, yeah. like they're supposed to be in this like gentrified neighborhood and they have these very sort of strong opinions on the neighborhood and the ways in which it's been changing and uprooting that history. And yet they never sort of just feel like caricatures. You know what I mean? I think in the original yeah. film, there was definitely 
characters in that that kind of just felt like caricatures. And I think about the way they portrayed Cabrini Green in a lot of ways, right? It's mm-hmm. the, a lot of the like the, the gangster type characters. It was just kind of like very stock standard, what you would expect. Also, something we're touching upon, the fact that in the original Candyman, a lot of those like gangsters were actually real <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that is true. <laughs> that they basically... Uh, <laughs> They wanted to film there and basically told the guys, like, hey, we're actually in a cool film movie here. And they <laughs> were like, yeah, but we want to play, like, we want to be in it. We want to actually play, like, mm. the That's character. a good point. So. I, did, I did forget that, uh, that little tidbit. <laughs> but I think overall, though, this movie just has so many different voices. And they all feel as if they are at home in this world in a way that I don't necessarily yeah. always associate with horror outside of maybe the core protagonist, right? Usually, I feel like not a single character is wasted, and that uh, is an extension also to uh, Troy Cartwright, who's played by Nathan Stewart Jarrett, uh, who is mm-hmm. Brianna's brother, right? And he pops up periodically with his boyfriend and whatnot, and they have yep. this really fantastic banter with Anthony, right? I think one of the moments uh, is that Anthony has like a creative block, right? He hasn't been able to paint in two years or produce anything in two years, and mm-hmm. so, Troy is leaving a party that they're having one night and he's just like, Anthony, you need to put down the weights and pick up the paintbrush. You know what I'm saying? Because, of course, Anthony's getting yoked again for uh, Aquaman 2. But it's just like little things like that. It's not overstated. It's not a five-minute scene. It's just a brief little snippet of dialogue. But you get everything about their relationship from that brief moment of dialogue. And I just love how this film has lots of little layered interactions like that um, throughout it. Even with the the dinner scene, like that's another sort of like scene where you can tell like with Tiana Paris' performance, like she doesn't ever say anything to Anthony, but like just the way she kind of like the facial reactions and her expressions, like they just show like how sort of important that dinner is to her, and like he is just <laughs> being the most awkward he could be. <laughs> Meanwhile, ripping that scab off of his hand to the degree that somebody at dinner is like, uh, you might want to stop I, doing that. Yeah, I think that honestly, I think that might have been my one gripe with the entire movie was any time. Like, I think if that were me and I saw someone whose hand was that jacked up, I would have just been like, yeah, you should probably go to a hospital. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, a long time before it got that bad. So that kind of moves us into the direction of the uh, third act of the film, which mm-hmm. I think is definitely the weakest part of the film for me and it was the only real part that I had an issue with in that the film has so many ideas and concepts that it wants to explore that I found Mm -hmm. that the third act feels more so overstuffed than the rest of the film. I find that while I like the twist and that ties into the original film I think that the way in which it kind of introduces it, it's so sudden it just feels like it comes out of nowhere so quickly like he goes to yeah. the hospital, he learns about it, and then he's right there confronting his mother. Like, I really wish they had planted those seeds. And again, I hadn't seen the trailer, so I didn't know about the twist. I wish mm-hmm. that they had planted those seeds a little earlier in the film. Like he goes to the doctor 40 minutes into the film and they reveal that. And then towards the end of the movie, when we've had time to think about the implications of that, then mm-hmm. when that conversation comes up with his mother, who's played by Vanessa Williams, and we have that reveal that, oh, he is the child that was pulled from the burning rubble of the first film. It just yep. feels like it is more natural rather than slam cutting from the hospital to confronting mom. To him go to mom be like, yeah. Exactly. Um, even with uh, Coleman Domingo, who played William Burke, mm-hmm. or Billy, like the child who uh, found Sherman Field. But, like, I thought he was great initially because he kind of played the guide of... The, like, we all know about Candyman, but in terms of uh, Anthony sort of research, like, William played the uh, the guide throughout the movie and kind of, you know, taking him through everything. And then at the end, like, what, when we kind of get the reveal that he is sort of trying to implant Candyman, whatever, like, it, I feel like it, he, it goes from, like, him being the sort of guy that really cares about uh, the myth and, you know, and kind of going from the guide to just the outright villain and like a really kind of cartoony way Mm. um and i I love coleman domingo like i uh he's in fear of the walking dead and he probably kind of he's like one of the standouts of that show um and even though his acting done really well like i just felt like that switch 
of uh, kind of his um, his method or his motive. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's just such a drastic switch that like it kind of pulled me out a little bit. Yeah, I will say um, that is I 100% agree with you. Like I don't I, I like his character so much, and he gives such a strong performance that to have him be this villain all of a sudden out of nowhere, it does feel very ham-fisted in a way that yeah. it did... and like, that, it's not like... Or, go ahead, sorry. That entire sort of just segment, it took me out of it for a minute before the finale, mm-hmm. like the true finale, which we'll get into in a minute, and what I think is a fantastic ending to the film. No. But, yeah, like, he goes from being this vestige of the neighborhood, this historian of the neighborhood... And then all of a sudden he's like not able to control his insanity. Like it kind of comes out yeah. of nowhere he, and he, he becomes so manic. And uh, like you said, he becomes a cartoonish villain to a certain extent where he's like mimicking these uh, white voices and he's talking yeah. to himself and he's got these like ticks and stuff and they come out of nowhere. And it's like all of a sudden he is this cartoonish villain that literally is just slammed into the final act of the film. Thing and like there is no like you say uh, about the whole hospital thing. Like if there were just some sort of seed planted of this, like even something as subtle as like when Anthony's leaving, like if he were if you just cut to Coleman Domingo just kind of watching him leave and like put a little smile on his face, like it would give anything of like oh like okay he like there is some weird like ulterior motive he has here. Like it would have given something to kind of indicate like he is up to something, but I feel like. The whole time he's just there as the guide, and then last minute he's suddenly the the big villain, and like there's no sort of indication, or there's no uh, nothing kind of leading up to that. Also, uh, I did really love the part where when Tiana Parrish goes to the laundromat to go see him, and he's not there, and she just opens the door to the basement, and she's just like, "Hell no!" <laughs> Shut the door. <laughs> but that's also a great example of just the film having a brief moment of levity, but it also shows going against the stereotype that they used to be in film, right? It's that it shows that they are not the caricatures that they have been portrayed as in a lot of white directed horror films or uh, horror films that have been written by white people, right? It's this idea that it's like, no, if you're as intelligent and you are as in the moment and you are supposed to be portraying what a person is like, like, characters should be in film like you are not going to make decisions that don't make any sense which again yeah. it, I th- movies like Scream have addressed it and all these other films have addressed it over the years but it's the type of thing where it's like you're going to play against the tropes that you're being portrayed as because that's how normal people behave and act that you're not yeah. you're not just being served as uh, as meat for the horror for the, for the horror the monster. yeah for the monster to devour but uh I just really was not a fan of the way in which Coleman Domingo is able to hide his insanity for three-fourths of the film, right? I think, again, if there had been some little nod, even if it was just like he has a jar of candy on his desk or something like that, just something to indicate, like, no, he has more behind the scenes of, like, what he's capable of. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think that I'm also conflicted on the idea of him wanting to create a Candyman. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. this idea that he's like taking somebody from the community and turning him into Candyman. I thought that that was strange, right? I'm also conflicted on that just because it's the idea that somebody from this community is finally taking charge of how Candyman will continue, right? This Candyman is not being born out of... This whole scene is being orchestrated by a black man to have white people commit murder and violence that will essentially start the next generation of Candyman. It's not just another black person falling victim to white people, right? It's more about them having a say in how Candyman is continued, which is very different, obviously, than Daniel Robitaille's uh, origin story, where he was murdered, obviously, uh, against his will. But this time, having a say in how a folklore or a myth from your own community starts, I think Mm -hmm. is more indicative of this film having more ownership of the myth and the folklore and all of these things. Yeah, it, it did a good job of kind of changing up the, the myth and everything uh, in general, but like that was the one point where it just felt like too drastic of a change. Yeah. Again, like it led to this weird chase for the tunnel mm-hmm. uh, where he's like already bleeding out because he wanted to sacrifice himself 
and he chasing her through the tunnel and it like it led to like the ending which was like absolutely killer and yeah or in a literal sense no pun intended uh but it's like that whole sequence like just that five minutes of the the whole church scene mm-hmm. just i wish was done a little differently Cause, like it's not like it's just a lot to process at once it feels like it, it feels just like slamming on the brakes for the momentum yeah. of the film it really did kill a lot of momentum before that finale which is terrific yeah just the idea which is i feel like thrown in way too drastically but um i mean again like enough harping on that part like we should talk about the actual ending yeah uh, which was just like chef kiss yeah <laughs> that ending was so good well, it's perfect because it ties into, obviously, the social commentary of the film, but it also mm-hmm. has the best supernatural slasher, most overt moment of that, right? This idea that, yeah. of course, the cops show up because that was what William Burke wanted to orchestrate, right? He orchestrates them showing up and saying how Candyman's shown up, and we get a literal depiction because he quite literally saws off Anthony's hand and then shoves a hook into his hand. And yeah. what do the police do when they show up? They, sh- they shoot him after being on scene for like three seconds, right? And then yeah. they arrest Brianna and they start to orchestrate this narrative where either Anthony came at them and so they had to kill him and Brianna either was a victim or she was helping him. She was coercing yeah. him to do this or something or other and we kind of just see the abuse of power and how those in charge essentially will are w- willing to pervert that power for their own personal gain and whatnot. And so seeing her get to summon Candyman and Candyman appearing, well, the manifestation appearing, and then him killing all of these dirty cops in the most brutal yeah. means uh, necessary was just so masterfully cathartic, I thought, in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. of how it ties into both the identity of Candyman but also this new version of it where, like, of course, he doesn't show up. He doesn't have a physical manifestation. It's just the spiritual, uh, the aura of Candyman. But it's still brutal yeah. and savage in a way that I, I fucking loved. Yeah, and I think the best part was just the way... Initially, I thought, like, wait, why is she going to summon him? And isn't he going to then kill her? Right. But just the way they played around with, like, her just saying it four times, and then she kind of makes the cop say it that last time, and basically <laughs> plants the, the kill onto him. Yeah, then you get this really great moment of, like, uh, of him walking around the car and like anti-pants each window uh you see a different reincarnation of Candyman uh in the face which was like just a really cool uh shot and then we get the fucking awesome cameo like very last minute of uh Tony Todd of uh him of the original reincarnation of Candyman and clearly like CGI'd him <laughs> yeah, they de-aged a little bit, him a little bit. Or, like, to de-age him a little bit, but still looked really good. Um, and you get the classic line of, like, tell everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, just a fucking, like, haunting way to end the movie, but... Yeah, it, that movie was... Yeah, I was just, like, even talking about it now, like, I'm just really excited uh, talking about it and just how much fun it was. Yeah, I think that, also, I like how the film really builds in the depiction of Candyman, right? Because for the majority of the film, we only see him in reflections. But then at the very end of it, it's when he's at his most supernatural and he's being swarmed by bees and everything and all of this. I just love that there was real restraint, I think, in not allowing this to be sort of the traditional slasher film that I think a lot of people assume that Candyman has always been. Again, like the way in which it kind of just, it ramps up is really well done, I think, in terms of just reaching that really brutal and cathartic ending um, that, and of course, you know, I, I love me a Tony Todd cameo, which was fantastic as well. <laughs> um, but I think just the movie also, like I want to mention one scene that um, you touched upon that I really, really like, which is that art gallery scene again, where you get mm-hmm. to see the juxtaposition of um, the reflection of, to- of uh, Candyman committing these heinous acts or brutal acts of violence and then getting to see the real world reflections where we're seeing the ramifications of it, but we don't actually see him. Like when he hooks yeah. a screen projector and he starts dragging it along, we see his reflection of him doing that in the mirror. But then when you look back to the 
character's perspective and looking at the screen, you just see the screen like getting sliced in half by nothing. Like, yeah. I just love playing around with perspective in a way that, again, mm. makes a very traditional scene just visually interesting throughout the entire course of it. And, I mean, a guy gets yeah. his Achilles tendon hooked and then ripped out. Like, it doesn't uh, get much more brutal than that. Try to think, what were the other kills? There were the four girls in the bathroom. There was Billy Hunter in the bathroom. Yep. Oh, that was another one, too, I think. Well, that actually ties into the uh, generational trauma thing that I really appreciate about the film in that we see that Brianna is so disturbed by the whole Candyman thing and how it really mm. enraptures Anthony and what that says about her in her own experience, right? Because we see that her father was a painter who killed himself. And it's no, it's no uh, coincidence that the father is wearing a jacket that kind of resembles the Candyman jacket, right? And he throws himself out of the window. Yeah. Like that, just a little moment like that, that doesn't show a lot of, uh, there's no blood or gore or brutality in that scene, but... I just really appreciate that the entire film just feels like it's woven together in a way that it all works and it doesn't feel like for a 90 minute film there is like almost no fat on this movie say what you will about yeah. that third act again we have some of our uh, issues with that but I think a majority of the film it just it uses its time so well to make sure that every element really kind of interweaves into the core concepts that the film's foundation is built upon. Well, I agree that like the uh, the journalist's death, like you had mentioned, was the way that that scene is composed, I think, is so visually intoxicating in a way that you're like, okay, why is this lingering? So, And then as soon as you're about to finish asking yourself that question, you see her just getting levitated and then fucking and smashed against the crop, yeah. yeah, it's it's a much more interesting way to do that than giving us just another scene of like her getting her throat ripped out or something like that. Yeah. Now that I think about it, like, the movie doesn't have a ton of kill and like for an hour and a half movie like maybe five actual scenes of kill mm -hmm. but I think it does a well enough job of like the way it portrayed and everything that it just made it fun to watch like I know uh I went to, <laughs> also we should <laughs> quickly talk about uh our, our I think uh you and I both had pretty similar theater experience <laughs> yeah. watching them too we did, um, especially after the uh, all the cops get murdered. Yeah, the the movie kind of cut, and I in my theater like me and my friend were like, "Dude, that movie's really good." And yeah. then I feel like uh, we were surrounded by a good amount of white people, and I think uh, there was just a pin drop silence mm -hmm. in there, and people were just visibly uncomfortable, and it was just really fun to watch. I mean, <laughs> kind of added for me the experience of the movie and how good it made it. It was a pretty great post-credit sequence of watching uh, a couple of white people in my audience uh, stand up and shake their heads as they walked out and it was just like, <laughs> this movie was clearly not made for them. But I think it's it's an indication that you and I both went to different theaters and yet had similar reactionary uh, experiences from, or seeing reactionary uh, experiences of other people and that it made people uncomfortable and it made people that should be uncomfortable when discussing race and things like that uncomfortable right i mean it brings yeah. up a lot of unfortunate truths about our society and whatnot and the fact again like it always brings me back to this idea that like some people are like well horror movies are just about killing and whatnot and it's like well or it's able to be a vessel for real world conversations in a way that sure it's going to make you uncomfortable but it's delivered in a much more palatable way I think um, yeah and I don't know I, I get joy out of seeing um, some of my my fellow whites be uncomfortable with the realities <laughs> that uh, yeah our experience is much different I, than a majority of the country I, I think the movie for them would have been perfect had that whole ending not happened like I think the the police brutality part and it's probably going to be the thing that a lot of people are going to have a hard time uh, digesting in a sense and you're either going to get people clapping in the theater <laughs> during that moment, or you're going to have people just literally, like, my friends and I were just like, yo, that's fucking dope, yeah. like, let's go, like, <laughs> uh, and meanwhile, like, everyone around us is just, like, m like hand on their mouth, mm -hmm. kind of like, uh, it was just beautiful. Well, th my buddy and I said, did the same thing, like, we were talking, we were watching the post-credits and talking about, or rather, we were watching the credits, and it has one of those puppet uh, puppet light shows again that plays over during the credits. And we were talking about how much we mm -hmm. liked it. And I realized about like 30 seconds into us talking about how good it was that I could only hear us 
because nobody else was talking or people enough people yeah. were starting to get up to leave. And it was just like people were listening to our conversation. And I was like, I don't think I've ever had that in a theater before where it's just like the only people in the entire theater that were talking during the credits. Like, you know what I mean? Or just like mentioning that they liked it. Like I've always generally hear chatter as soon as the credits roll on a movie. Right. Because you hear people giving their initial reactions and all this stuff. Not a single other person in our theater. And granted, there was only probably 10 of us in the theater total. But at the same time, like it was the first for me and us being the only people talking about not even just how much we liked it, but I mean, talking at all. It was weird. It was definitely weird, but it was so funny. Just like afterward when we walked out, we were like, dude, why was it so quiet? (laughs) People were just so uncomfortable. I think it's uh, it's a testament to Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele and those involved that they're able to make a horror film that has more to it than just its kills, right? And that's why when people talk about Candyman, like I, for simplicity's sake, I'll say it's a supernatural slasher. But again, I still think that that's a disservice because the film has done, goes to great strides in addressing social issues in a way that, yeah, there's there might be one or two scenes where it's like, yeah, it's super on the nose or it might be hitting you over the head with mm-hmm. it. But I think as a whole, again, this is a film that it's indicative that it was made by people that understand the source material. They understand the concepts and the messages that they want to tell with the film. In addition to being true to the Candyman uh, lore and mythos and even taking massive swings on it. And for my money, it really capitalizes on those swings in a great way. Unlike Fate Jam 2. <laughs> we might have to do a, uh, a, a cast for Green Line Fair Films on Space Jam 2 because it sounds like you got some problems with that film. But I've got qualms for that movie, yeah. but, but we'll do that for another day. But uh, <laughs> in wrapping up, was there any other elements of Candyman that really worked for you that I kind of glossed over? Vanessa Williams was great again. Seeing her after th- like 30 years, probably. Almost. Some, almost 30 years. She looked incredible. She, she was just inc- I just loved her little moment of like the minute he mentioned Candyman, she's just like, like yep. stop, like don't don't say that name of the silence. Mm-hmm. Um, her brother was great. Yeah, I think, honestly, like I'm trying to think of anything else, but I'm pretty sure we touched upon like every great scene. And even like Cabrini Green looked, I just loved like, the shot of uh, him just standing in the middle of the road, and, like you see, mm-hmm. really kind of like, really, just pro- like shitty houses, yeah. like and then you get the fucking skyline in front of him, like down the street, of you know, they're just again like it comes down to like, the um, the cinematography and just like how stylish uh, some of these shots were in the movie, and like how you can convey so much with like, you know, how one shot can just convey so much yeah. without having to say anything. Um, which, yeah, again, I think Nia DeCoffin just done a really good job of using, like, minimal sort of, uh, con- or, you know, show, don't tell. Yeah. Like, I-, I know you and I have complained a lot about movies from the past that <laughs> do a lot of that, of, or just, you know, have to explain everything. Right. But I think that's one of the movies that, like, people can learn from. <laughs> and, you know. I think in a very short amount of time, Nia DaCosta has shown that she has, like you had said, a flair to approaching very standard moments or techniques in films, right? These kind of very just mm. structural things that, at no fault of their own, they're just very simplistic, and yet she's able to incorporate a much more creative and nuanced way to it. And it doesn't feel that she has to show everything. And I think that that's really important. And I think it's probably the most impressive thing you could say about a new young up-and-coming filmmaker or someone that doesn't necessarily have a large filmography at this point in their career right she's been able to do a lot with very little and uh i mean her being attached to you said captain marvel 2 like that i mean that's i would not be interested in seeing that otherwise and that's something that actually has me interested in checking out another marvel movie sometime soon which is not something I thought I'd say for a good long while, but uh, Wahid, yeah. it was uh, it was a pleasure having you on Daily Horror Habits to talk Candyman and horror in general. Yeah, dude, I'm glad to see you continuing to just do, do your thing. I know I fell off, but I think that's definitely gonna inspire me to go back and continue because we've been uh, it's been a minute now. We actually have movies coming out, so I'm I'm super excited to get back into it. Uh, but yeah, it's been super fun being on here. 
yeah, I had a blast chatting with you and don't sell yourself short. I mean, green, it sounds from what we've been talking about, it sounds like uh, Greenline Fair Films is going to be making a comeback sometime soon. So I look Hopefully, forward yeah. to we'll, spreading the in word. In a week or two, yeah, please do. But yeah, it's been, it's been good chatting with you, man. A lot of fun being back, doing our thing. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.